0: northern hemisphere, approach the shortest day of the year. I'm told that here in Minneapolis, the moment when the Earth's tilt will start to slowly come back around to point back towards the sun in our direction is 9.27 p.m. on December 21st. I hope that at that exact moment, many of you will be appropriately at our winter solstice celebration which I'm sure you'll hear more about later uh, for now. There's one that night. There's one on the 22nd as well, which will include folk dancing. That's, that's pretty fun. However, if you come on the 21st, you can have another kind of fun. You can hear other members of the FES community perform storytelling. So I'm looking forward to that as FVS member... <laughs> Karen Rowell posted in our FUS blog, accountings of Ojibwe history tell us that for people indigenous to this area, winter was a time for storytelling. During During other seasons, the people's activities were focused around hunting, gathering, growing food. But during the long, dark nights, in a bitter, cold winter, there was time for entertainment and the teaching of children. Winter storytelling, she continues, is a tradition grounded in the cycle of the seasons. If you look far enough back in time in any non-tropical culture, you are sure to find stories being told after dark, probably around a fire. The fire where people would gather for warmth and their stories would bind them together in community. The solstice in what has generally come to be regarded as the end of one year and the start of the next has also been a time for reflection. Reflection on the cycles of life, the seasonal cycles of death and rebirth in the natural world, and the cycles of birth and death that mark the beginning and end of life for all living beings. As it happens, the end of the year also marks and an ending and a new beginning for, for me. My time here at FUS is coming to an end. This will be my last talk here. Thank you. At least for the time being. So for one thing, we can take some time to look back at the year and what we've learned, what worked, what didn't, what do we want to carry forward? What do we want to leave behind? And again, we can reflect on the mysteries of our existence as we gather around the fire and look up to the stars and the vastness of space. We can consider the brief span of conscious life in which we get to experience it all. We might ask questions like, who am I? And where do I fit in all of this? Perhaps the greatest mystery, at least in the world that exists, between the far macro level of dark matter and cosmic background radiation and the micro level of quantum entanglement. The greatest mystery in our day to day experience is experience. It's consciousness, right? This thing that is so intimately familiar to the philosopher and the neuroscientist, but so hard for them to or anyone to define. Back in June, on our coming of age Sunday, I spoke about the mysterious human capacity for metacognition, our ability to think about the way we think, the way we think and act, and to imagine other ways of thinking and being that we can move towards. I spoke of this as a kind of human superpower but also as a responsibility that we can really mess up. In a related observation, psychologist Stephen Hayes, one of the developers of acceptance and commitment therapy, which I've spoken about often as um, some of the training for my, my other job, Hayes talks about our capacity for symbolic thought, which allows for metacognition, and which is our capacity for language itself, this is our superpower, and it can be our kryptonite. Using language, we can model problems in our individual and collective minds. We can imagine new solutions and implement those plans. We can also get stuck in our ways. As brilliant as they may have been at one point in time in one situation, or we can get trapped by our fears or our shame. In his most recent book, A Liberated Mind, Hayes shares the example of what happens in experiments when you give humans a language-based rule such as push this button to earn money. And then you set the machine to give them a dime after roughly every eight to 12 presses. Not exactly, but just on average. Pretty soon, they're pressing away at that button. But if then you change the way the machine works and make it pay out on the first press after every, say, three to seven seconds, it's hard for them to detect the change. Monkeys, birds, and rats, receiving food rather than dimes, figure out pretty quickly that they can slow down Humans keep pressing that button rapidly, sometimes for hours, and start saying things like, this machine must be broken. (laughs) When we're stuck in behavioral patterns that aren't working for us, whether we think the problem is that the world around us is broken or not, sometimes it is. As Loretta Ross taught us back in April, while defining brave safe versus safe space, Either way, usually the best thing to do is to slow down and just observe what's happening, both internally and externally. What Hayes calls and others call the third wave of the cognitive and behavioral perspective or contextual behavioral science focuses not just on conditioned responses, not just on automatic thoughts, but on how we relate to thoughts and feelings and how this either narrows or expands the range of responses at our disposal? Can we recognize when a pattern isn't working for us anymore and shift our response in a way that is more in line with our values? The skill that is proven helpful here is one we've talked about and which has been a part of many ancient spiritual traditions, most clearly in Buddhism, it's mindfulness. And we tried to practice a form of mindfulness in this space, right? In July, we reflected on nationalism. We used an audience response system to observe together the different feelings and thoughts that showed up in us. And Jay captured them in art and the unhelpful behaviors that we can sometimes engage in in response to those feelings and thoughts, we recognized these patterns and tried to hold this recognition gently, compassionately, mindfully. And in that space, we tried to open up and look at our values for inspiration to consider what alternative responses might be more helpful in moving us towards the kind of world we want. I hope I made clear that I see that kind of community mindfulness, not as something new I was bringing to this space, but as a way of perhaps expanding and even being even more intentional about the mindful approach that has been a part of this community for many years since since before I was born. And just as I feel fortunate to see how helpful contextual behavioral science can be for individuals and myself, clients i've been grateful for the opportunity to try to apply these ideas on a larger scale here with all of you in this community so thank you someone who has long recognized the potential for contextual behavioral science to be applied at a larger scale is actually our guest who will be joining us via zoom at noon today david sloan wilson is an evolutionary biologist and is expert in among other things the evolutionary and cultural development of cooperations in both animals and human cultures. I'm pretty sure I've referenced his work at least once in every one of my talks and i have enjoyed getting to know him a little bit through his nonprofit work. And I met him for the first time at a conference last month related to some of these ideas. Of course, I was very pleased by his energetic response to my invitation to spend some time with us and answer our questions. So I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you'll all come back here after lunch for that. I've described before how Wilson partnered with Stephen Hayes, the behavioral psychologist I mentioned earlier, as well as the organizational psychologist Paul Atkins, to apply contextual behavioral science combined with evolutionary principles to the formation and behavior of groups, developing a group process called ProSocial in a book of the same name. Over the past couple of months, a group of us here at FUS had a chance to test drive ProSocial to some degree. Here at FUS, we already have all kinds of groups, committees, volunteer opportunities, fundraising, service projects, what I wanted was to see for ourselves whether the pro-social process could really enhance the ability of one of our groups to clarify purpose and effectively move towards action. I put out a call to anyone interested in using the pro-social process to to design and test a one-off sort of prototype community activity which would be determined by the values of the group using that pro-social process. That was the whole plan. To my delight and, and relief, several of you were willing to join me in that adventure, and I thank you, you all. I won't make you raise your hands. I didn't, I didn't prepare them for that. Both individually and collectively, we asked ourselves some questions like the ones we asked about nationalism and the Israel-Gaza conflict. What matters most to us here what thoughts and feelings show up that make it harder to move towards what matters? If these feelings and thoughts have their way, what unhelpful outward behaviors might be visible? If we're really living in line with what matters, what might that look like? Now, there's nothing magical about these questions, and there's lots of other tools we could use. What is kind of magical, in my mind, So what happens when individuals and groups can be vulnerable, really become aware of, make room for what's difficult, recall what's important? We started coming up with ideas. I should say we did address some of the core design principles for groups such as decision-making norms, but then we really needed to hurry up and get to work on our our project in this limited time, the activity we all came together on was storytelling. It's funny because I'd been talking about storytelling with my internship committee back in the spring after having read the book Between the Listening and the Telling by Mark Iaconelli, in which he shares about the hearth community, a storytelling congregation of sorts in Ashland, Oregon, which I had found inspiring I talked about the book with our Monday writing group and read a quote from that book at the assembly the writing group led in August. Then I kind of left it at that, sort of forgot about it. But then as we in our new paths group were identifying our values for a new activity, things like fun, connection, inclusion, mutual support, et cetera. I thought, oh yeah, storytelling, it fits. And there was kind of this collective, yeah, yeah, that's it. We'd already identified those values and it it fit. And then we dove in. The team planning the solstice celebration was on board to have storytelling as part of one of the night's festivities. So we came up with the idea of a storytelling workshop. And in the space of just a few weeks, we brought it all together. Happened that a skilled storytelling professional who lives right down the way in Wezada was available and interested. We applied for funding from the FUS Foundation, and last weekend we held a really lovely event. And I will put put you on the spot now. Was anybody here uh, at that at that event? Okay, a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few of you. Yeah, it was nice. It was it was it was small. It was about a. Um, Uh, maybe 10 10 folks in total. Now we still have the main story telling event to come. I haven't had a chance to gather feedback from the group or the participants yet, but I'll say I, I was very much encouraged by this experience of trying out ProSocial. No doubt we were just lucky to have a great group of people, no surprise there, gathered from this community. But I think that engaging in the process did make a difference in how we interacted and how we were able to work together so smoothly. I'm excited to see what happens with storytelling both at the solstice and maybe ongoing here at FUS based on some of the uh, interest that's been expressed. We'll see. But either way, I love how storytelling fits with contextual behavioral science, evolution, pro-social, If you think about it, it's another less formal way of looking at what's there for us, right? It can be a way of observing what works and what doesn't, a way of holding space for it all, a way of recalling values, a way of imagining new possibilities. So in that spirit, I want to leave you with a story that gave me hope recently. Normally this would be without notes, but I, it's not quite there. You may have seen this article in the New York Times on November 30th. It's the story of Silverton, Colorado, an old mining town perched in a high valley up in the San Juan Mountains of southwestern Colorado isolated and picturesque, it had nonetheless somehow resisted becoming another hyper gentrified Telluride or Aspen. Stayed small, close knit and a little rough around the edges. But things were slowly starting to change. Finally, things came to a head in April of 2020, when newcomer Shane Furman, the New York lawyer turned Silverton boutique hotelier, Unseated the longtime mayor and fire chief Gilbert Archuleta. Tensions openly started to fray. Eventually, a minor disagreement about saying the Pledge of Allegiance at meetings blew up into a national scandal. One of the old guard residents tipped off Fox News about the protest they were holding to insist that the pledge be reinstated. Bomb threats and death threats started to pour in. City Hall had to be shut down for days. And I quote, what the world was seeing that pandemic summer was a town pulling apart. But unseen were the first efforts to restore peace. The economic development nonprofit community builders had been brought in to help develop a master plan for the town now they were being asked or asked to broker a peace. And again, I quote: "Community builders was asked, community builders asked questions that were intentionally open ended. Why do you love to live here? What are your hopes for the future and for your life here? What are your fears?" Maybe not necessarily contextual behavioral science or pro-social, perhaps, or even storytelling per se, but very much akin, right? Slowly, a new shared identity started to emerge. Relations began to thaw. And in the end, even former mayor Archuleta came around. And in April of last year, the firefighters held a happy hour and taco bar at the station to unveil the town's new shared master plan. So stories like that give me hope in dark times. These ideas I've been discussing give me hope. And most of all, you guys being in a community like this um, and getting to be, be part of it and uh, and sharing it all with you gives me, gives me hope. So, thank you all. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.